Section 11 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 31. Natural History. 5. The Lower Vertebrates. The genealogical tree of animals splits at the top into the two great branches of birds and mammals, both of which may be traced back to an origin among extinct reptiles. Separate articles have dealt with birds and mammals. It is now necessary to turn to the lower vertebrates, and a very interesting series they are, as they afford fine illustrations of progress. It will be convenient to begin with the most primitive types and work upwards. The Essential Characters of Vertebrates As far back as Aristotle, 384-322 B.C., there was a recognition of the distinction between backboned animals, vertebrates, and backboneless animals, invertebrates. It was seen that mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fishes have a good deal in common, such as backbone and red blood, and stand by themselves as contrasted with mollusks, spiders, insects, worms, sea urchins, corals, sponges, and unicellulars, which make up the sub-kingdom of the backboneless. Now this old contrast lasts today, but there are three changes in the modern outlook. In the first place, we know more clearly what are the deep differences, the most significant differences, between the vertebrates and the invertebrates. A. Many invertebrates, like a lobster or an insect, have a well-developed nerve cord, but this lies on the ventral surface of the body and is connected anteriorly by a ring round the gullet with a dorsal brain in the head. Invertebrates, however, the whole of the central nervous system lies along the dorsal middle line, forming the brain and the spinal cord. B. Underneath the spinal cord of the vertebrate, there runs a supporting skeletal rod, the endodermic notochord, which is pinched off from the dorsal middle line of the embryonic food canal. It is the supporting axis of the body in a pioneer vertebrate like a landslit or a lamprey, but in most fishes and in all higher forms, it is replaced by something better than itself, the mesodermic backbone. The notochord does not become a backbone. It is rather like a preliminary scaffolding, a provisional support, which is replaced in most cases by a more permanent structure of different embryonic origin. This is what is called the substitution of organs. The backbone with its numerous vertebrae is the substitute of the old-fashioned notochord. But it is a fine example of the past living on in the present, that the embryos of the higher vertebrates always have a notochord, though it is represented after embryonic life by vestigial traces only. As regards the notochord, even man has to climb up his own genealogical tree. C. The anterior region of the food canal in fishes and tadpoles shows slits, bordered by gills, through which flows the water which is used in breathing. In reptiles, birds, and mammals, these gill slits are not used for breathing and are not of any use at all except that the first becomes the eustachian tube leading from the ear passage to the back of the mouth. But these gill slits, never represented in invertebrates, constitute an important vertebrate character. The recent discovery of minute traces of gills in the embryonic gill slits of two or three birds and reptiles shows us again 
how the past lives on in the present. D. Another deep difference is that the eye of the vertebrate has its beginnings as an outgrowth from the brain, whereas the eye of the invertebrate is an ingrowth from the skin. E. Many an invertebrate has a well-developed heart, but it is dorsal, whereas the vertebrate's heart is ventral. Thus we see that to put an invertebrate into the vertebrate position, we must invert it, bringing the nerve cord to the dorsal surface and the heart to the ventral surface. This has suggested the hypothesis that vertebrates may have evolved from invertebrates, which took to swimming on their backs. Not such a wild theory as it may seem at first sight. In any case, the theory indicates the second change in the modern outlook, that we inquire into the pedigree of vertebrates. There is no certainty, but there is probably most to be said for the hypothesis that the primitive vertebrates were scions of a ringed worm, annelid stock. The third change that has come about is the recognition that fishes are not by any means the lowest vertebrates. Below the level of fishes, there are the jawless lampreys and hags, and the extinct, likewise jawless, hypostomes. Below these come the lancelets, simpler still, the sea squirts, and lowest of all are numerous worm-like forms called interrupnusts, which almost seem to bind the vertebrates to the invertebrates. Let us briefly consider these lowest rungs on the ladder of vertebrate evolution. Paragraph 1. The Pioneers The Enteropneus, their name means gut breathers, are certainly old-fashioned animals, and they are widely distributed in many parts of the world. They usually eat their way through sandy mud off the coasts. Probably they represent a side track on the main line of vertebrate ascent, for they are either vertebrate-like worms or worm-like vertebrates. Thus, they have got numerous gill slits opening from the pharynx to the dorsal surface of the body. And another remarkable feature is that the body cavity develops in a manner closely similar to that seen in lancelets. The size varies from about an inch to several feet. The colors are bright. There is usually a peculiar odor like that of iodoform. The food consists of microscopic organisms and organic particles in the sand or mud. The sexes are separate. The body shows a burrowing proboscis in front of the mouth, a firm collar behind the mouth, a region with gill slits, and a coiled posterior portion. In the proboscis, there is a little supporting rod like a notochord, and there is a nerve strand both on the mid-dorsal and on the mid-ventral side. One of the common genera is called balanoglossus, and besides interopneus in the strict sense, there are some other remarkable antecedent types, notably the strange cephalodiscus discovered by the Challenger expedition. They show the falsity of the frequent anti-evolutionist suggestion that connecting links are always missing. The forms we have just spoken of may not be on the direct line, but that they are transitional is evident. The sea squirts. The second rung of the ladder is represented by the tunicates, ascidians, or sea squirts, many of which are like double-mouthed leather water bottles. Nothing could be less like a vertebrate than a typical sea squirt, and yet it begins its life as a free-swimming larva, like a miniature tadpole, with a brain and spinal cord, a distinct notochord, two gill slits, a ventral heart, and a brain eye. The larva is an undoubted vertebrate, 
but in most cases it fastens itself by its head to seaweed, stone, or shell, and becomes a nondescript. With great rapidity there sets in a progress of degeneration. The tunicate stumbles at the threshold of vertebrate life. It begins well, but it does not fulfill the promise of its youth. In a few cases, for example, appendicularia, the larval characters are retained throughout life. Exceptions that prove the rule. Many tunicates form colonies, and some of these are free-swimming, like the tubular pyrosome or fire flame, which is sometimes two to three feet long and splendidly luminescent. On a line of their own are the glassy salps of the open sea, which sometimes form long chains. The Lanslets Another class of primitive vertebrates is constituted by the Lanslets, known as Amphioxus. They are spindle-shaped marine animals about two inches long, translucent, fond of lying in fine sand with the mouth protruding, and surrounded by a wreath of ciliated cirri by means of which microscopic organisms and particles are wafted in. Now and then, the landslits rise out of the sand and swim about. They are archaic creatures and have had time to establish themselves in most seas. They have so many negative characters, no skull, no jaws, no limbs, no brain, no eye, no heart, and so forth, that one begins to wonder what they have. But they are genuine vertebrates with a spinal cord, a notochord, and gill clefts, and they have several features in common with tunicates to which they present no superficial resemblance. The Round Mouths Before we reach the level of fishes, there is a small class of cyclostomes or round mouths, represented by the lampreys and hags. If the word fish is to mean anything, it cannot include these forms, for they are jawless, limbless, and scaleless, and they have peculiar gill purses and an unpaired nostril. They are antiquities related to a very remarkable fossil called Paleospondylus, which occurs in the old red sandstone of Caithness, a little animal about the size of a tadpole, but a most interesting relic of early vertebrate life. Still more ancient are the extinct hypostomes, also jawless, which make their appearance in the Silurian, for example, Terichthys and Teraspis. They are the oldest known vertebrates, and it is a fact to be carefully considered that the vertebrate stock had more than begun in Silurian times, many scores of millions of years ago. Lampreys are eel-like slippery animals with gristly skeleton, simple skull, horny teeth, and seven pairs of gill pockets. The smaller kinds live in fresh water, the yard-long Petromyzon marinus spends most of its life in the sea, but ascends the rivers to spawn, dying thereafter. The young forms are called nine-eyes, though practically blind, and they remain larval for two or three years. Lampreys eat worms and other small fry, and even dead animals, but they sometimes fasten themselves aggressively to fishes, rasping holes in the skin and sucking the flesh and juices. The glutinous hag, Mycene glutinosa, is a strange, flesh-colored, eel-like creature, about a foot in length, which lives in rather deep parts of the sea. It is a bundle of peculiarities. Thus the eye is arrested on its way out from the brain. Under provocation, the skin secretes so much slime that the old naturalists spoke of the hag, quote, turning water into glue, unquote. It seems to be first a male and then a female. 
Hags devour the bait and even the fish from a fisherman's lines, and three or four are sometimes found inside a hooked fish. They are sometimes very troublesome by clogging the lines with slime and by biting off the bait. Of the Californian hag, Delastoma, a Chinese fisherman said with exasperation, Evely hook, one cyclostome. Having learned the scientific name of the creature from the students of the Hopkins Laboratory at Monterey. Paragraph 2. Fishes. The first vertebrate animals to attain great success were the fishes, and they are as well adapted to the water as birds to the air. It is useful to distinguish three subclasses. One, the grisly fishes with ventral mouth like shark and skate. Two, the mostly bony fishes like cod and salmon, herring and eel, with terminal mouth. And three, the small group of double breathers, or dipnoi, which are halfway to amphibians, having evolved a lung. These have all got their extinct predecessors, and there are some living fossils of great interest, like the polypterus of African rivers and the bony pike, Lepidosteus of North America, with its splendid suit of chain armor. In the great majority of fishes, the body is torpedo-like, with streamlines well suited for rapid swimming. The method of swimming is a kind of sculling. The posterior part of the body consists almost wholly of muscle, and jerks off a mass of water on each side alternately. In a few cases, like the skates, where the tail has become a weapon, the paired forefins are used in swimming. In ordinary fishes, they are balancing organs. Of course, there are peculiar shapes adapted to peculiar conditions. The skates are flattened from above downwards and lie on their ventral surface on the floor of the sea. The bony flatfish, like place and sole, undergo in early life a flattening from side to side. They rest and swim on their right side or left side. Pigment disappears from the downturned, unillumined side, which glistens with a silvery deposit of the waste product guanin. The eye on the downturned side travels round the corner to join its fellow on the upturned side, be that right or left. Then there are inflated globe fishes adapted for floating on the surface of the sea, cylindrical eels adapted for insinuating themselves through crevices or burrowing in the mud, flying fishes able to volplane over the waves, and the quaint seahorses with prehensile tails suited for a leisurely playful life among the seaweed. Similarly, there are endless adaptations to different ways of feeding. The sharks, intensely carnivorous, with great strength of jaw and an abundant succession of formidable teeth. The angler or fishing frog, with its fishing rod and dangling bait, and an enormous gape bordered by backward-bent teeth, which, being hinged at their bases, make the entrance of the booty easy and the exit impossible the mackerel depending mainly on minute open sea crustaceans, the carp to a great degree vegetarian. Most fishes are prolific, sometimes producing several millions of ova, but there are some cases where the evolution of parental, usually paternal, care has coincided with economized reproduction. Thus the stickleback makes his nest, the seahorse shelters the developing ova in a skin pocket, and Curtis, from New Guinea, carries a double bunch about on the top of his head. In the great majority of fishes, the fertilization is external, the male discharging the milt, seminal fluid, on the spawn, the liberated ova. 
but there is internal fertilization in grisly fishes and in viviparous bony fishes, such as the viviparous blenny, where the eggs hatch out within the mother. Many fishes have a much less definite limit of growth than is usual among animals. Thus a haddock sometimes occurs a yard long, but it is very rare for a fish to show any hint of senescent changes in its tissues. The age is registered in the rings of growth in the scales and ear ossicles. Finally, we may note that in the class of fishes, we have the beginnings of bone, of jaws, of paired limbs, of true teeth, of paired nostrils, and many other features. All fishes have gills, feathery outgrowths of the wall of the pharynx on which the blood is exposed over a large surface to the oxygenating action of the water. But a few of them, like the bony pike, use the hydrostatic swim bladder as an auxiliary breathing organ, while in the three mudfishes, or dipnoi, this structure certainly deserves the name of lung. In this respect, as well as in their multicellular skin glands, those of fishes are almost invariably unicellular, their incipiently three-chambered heart, and the first appearance of a great posterior vein, resembling the inferior vena cava of higher vertebrates, the betwixt and between mudfishes point the way to amphibians. Paragraph 3. Amphibians. The modern frogs and toads, newts and salamanders are not impressive. The Japanese giant salamander, Cryptobronchus, which lives like a hermit in the dark places of cool, clear, swiftly flowing brooks, may attain a length of 5 feet 3 inches, but that is quite prodigious for a modern amphibian. The large American bullfrog, Rana catisbiana, that calls from the ponds in a hoarse bass voice, broom, some observers hear it as morum, is only seven inches long, or ten if the hind legs are stretched out. The fact is that most living amphibians are pygmies, and we have to go back to the extinct carboniferous forms to find the giants of this class. The amphibians seem to have begun in the Devonian epoch. The first terrestrial footprint has this date but their golden age was in the Carboniferous. Since then, they have gradually declined, gentle, unarmored, weaponless creatures with a poor development of brains. Yet we must look to the ancestors of our amphibians for many new acquisitions. Fingers and toes for the first time, genuine ventral lungs, open communications between the nostrils and the mouth, a three-chambered heart, and a mobile muscular tongue. With few exceptions, the young stages of amphibians breathe by gills, and these are sometimes retained throughout life, as in the proteus of the Dalmatian caves. But all adult amphibians have lungs except a few abnormal newts, and the skin is also capable of cutaneous respiration, as our frogs illustrate in their winter's rest. The greatest interest of amphibians is that they were the first vertebrates to colonize the dry land and that most of them recapitulate in their individual life history today some of the steps in that great adventure. Reptiles Lizards, snakes, tortoises, crocodilians, and the archaic Sphenodon of New Zealand, another living fossil, represent the reptiles of today, and they had their extinct predecessors. But besides the latter, which are continued on in their modern descendants, there were many ancient stocks that have entirely ceased to be. Thus the flying dragons or pterodactyls 
have had no successors, and the same is probably true of ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs. The blood of some of the dinosaurs may still be flowing, so to speak, in birds and mammals, which evolved from that progressive and heterogeneous stock. But there are other reptilian branches on the genealogical tree which bear no leaves today. It was probably in the Carboniferous epoch that reptiles evolved from their amphibian ancestry. In the Permian, they were the dominant vertebrates. The New Zealand Tuatera, Sphenodon, belongs to an order by itself, of which it is the sole survivor. It was in it, first of all, that the pineal body, an upgrowth from the roof of the tween brain, optic thalami, was recognized as having distinct traces of an eye, for example, complex retina. This rare animal, one to two feet long, is preserved in some small islands off the New Zealand coast, surviving as best it can in virtue of its cryptozoic or elusive habits. It lives in a burrow, feeds on insects, worms, and other small creatures, and comes out at night. It sometimes shares its hole with a petrel. About ten eggs are laid in the warm sand, and they are remarkable in requiring over a year to hatch out. As in the case of other archaic types, the development of Sphenodon is of great zoological interest. Crocodiles and alligators and the long-snouted gavials are strong, heavily armored reptiles, at home in tropical rivers, clumsy and stiff-necked on land, feeding on fishes and small mammals, growing very slowly and without obvious limit, and attaining a great longevity. They often lie in wait for their victims at the water's edge and drown them, being themselves able to breathe while the mouth is full of water, for they shunt the opening of the windpipe forward to embrace the posterior nostrils, situated at the end of the bony tunnel at the very back of the mouth. When the crocodile raises its nostrils above the surface of water during the drowning operation, the air can pass continuously to the lungs, and no water can go down the wrong way. The crocodilians have a four-chambered heart, as in birds and mammals, but they remain cold-blooded. They are the only vertebrates, other than mammals, to have teeth in sockets, and if one be broken, there is another, and another, ready to replace the loss. In other words, there are many sets of teeth. The eggs are like those of geese, and are buried in the soil to be hatched by the heat of the sun, sometimes abetted by decaying vegetation. In some cases, the mother digs up the hatching eggs when she hears the young ones piping from within. The Indian crocodile may reach a length of 18 feet, and the gavial may be 2 feet longer. Tortoises and Turtles Tortoises are among the most perfectly armored of animals, surpassed only by the armadillos. They are boxed in by an arched carapace above and a flat shield below, and they can partially retract their head, tail, and limbs. They are almost invulnerable. They tend to be slow in growth and slow in movement. They have a very tough constitution and can endure prolonged fasting. The tissues are famous for their tenacity of local life. Thus, the turtle's heart will beat for two or three days after the rest of the animal has been made into soup. The Lacertilians, or lizards, form a very heterogeneous order. They are usually active in their movements, but fond of basking in the sun. Many of them are resplendent in their coloring, while others harmonize to perfection with their immediate surroundings. 
Most of them are able to surrender the tail when seized by an enemy and to regrow it at leisure. Most lay eggs, but a few, like the British brown lizard, are viviparous. The only poisonous lizard is the Mexican heloderma. The chameleons are adapted for arboreal life and are famous for their color changes. The phrenosome, or horned toad, of Texas and Arizona is full of curiosities, for example, in having an eyelid hemorrhage when much excited. The little dracos of the Far East swoop from tree to tree on collapsible parachutes of skin extended on much elongated ribs. The snake-like slow worms and amphisbenas are suited for burrowing in the earth. Perhaps there is no order of vertebrates so diversified as the lizards. The most highly specialized of the reptiles are the snakes or serpents, ophidia. Apart from rudiments of a hip girdle and the vanishing points of hind legs in pythons, boas, and a few others, snakes are thoroughly limbless, and there is no hint of shoulder girdle or breastbone. They row on the ground with the ribs, which are attached to the ventral scales, and they may jerk themselves forward by a rapid straightening of their sinuous curves. Yet they swim and climb and burrow. The mouth is very expansible and suited for booty large in proportion to the size of the head. The bifid tongue is a sensitive organ of touch. A pair of salivary glands may be transformed into poison glands. The poison fangs are teeth folded to make a groove or a canal for the venom. The internal organs of the body are adjusted to the great elongation. The outermost layer of the epidermis, covering the horny scales and taking their imprint, is peeled off and turned inside out from the head to the tail as a coherent slough. Most are oviparous, but the adder and some others have developed viviparity. Such, then, is a survey of the lower vertebrates. The worm-like enteropneus, the sea squirts, the lancelets, the round mouths, the fishes, the amphibians, and the reptiles. From among the last, there arose the higher, warm-blooded vertebrates, the birds and the mammals. End of chapter 31. End of section 11.